Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 7, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. This is God's holy word. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, every word of it, and we need it so much. We need to hear you speaking to us by your Holy Spirit. Speak strength into our lives and into our hearts. Father, minister to us by your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. By the way, if you are in a white chair, those those are good for about 30 minutes, and then they uh, don't feel so good. So I will not be offended if you come get a metal chair or if you have to stand up. And uh, also, I've done my best. I'm going to try to um, keep it uh, as, as short and cover the entire text as I can today. So know that I am conscious and aware of both the temperature and the comfort level that we're working with today. We saw last week and, and heard and remembered Jesus entered Jerusalem on the last week before his crucifixion. As he entered Jerusalem, he was hailed and praised by a crowd waving palm branches. He goes directly up to the temple to declare its destruction. He interrupts the, the operations of the temple. And then he tells his disciples, he says, look around. One day very soon, none of this is going to be here. Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. As disciples ask him the question any one of us would have asked, when are these things going to take place? And so Jesus takes them out to the Mount of Olives, and in Matthew 24, and in Mark 13, and in Luke 21, Jesus tells them what to look for, that those things that are going to come before the end, the things that are going to take place in that generation before the end of uh, the judgment against Jerusalem. And Jesus listed in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, he talked about wars and strife between nations and famine and pestilence and persecutions and earthquakes and political collapse. He uses the language in the Gospels of decreation. Last week in Revelation, we saw that uh, John is invited up into the throne room of God. He sees the Lord Jesus take a book from his father's hand, and one by one, he opens the seals of that book to unleash wars, strife between nations, famine, pestilence, persecutions, earthquakes, and political collapse. Once again, in Revelation 6, we saw decreation. Now we hear the words of Jesus, and we read these words of the first six seals, and we may ask, well, 
Did any of that literally happen in the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem? Did it really happen the way that Jesus said it would? Or was this all somehow spiritual and maybe not connected with history at all? Well, thankfully, we have the work of Josephus, the Jewish historian who was not a Christian, but who lived at this time, who wrote about the last days of Jerusalem. And the testimony of Josephus is, yes, these things really did happen. Last week, we read that the white horse came and Jesus led the charge. And behind him, a red horse came that removed peace from the land. Well, Josephus writes in, in the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, the land was filled with murderers and revolutionaries and terrorists. Every city, Josephus says, had two or three factions in it that wanted nothing less than the destruction of the other factions of people. It was very, very sectarian and bloodthirsty. They were each seeking each other's destruction. It was common to see cities filled with dead bodies, according to Josephus. Last week, we read that the black horse brought famine. Well, Josephus talks about the frantic search for food in the days leading up to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Men would break into houses, not looking for silver, not looking for gold, but looking for grain. You would break into your neighbor's house to look for grain. And if you found anything to eat, if you had bread to eat, you turned all the lights off, you closed the windows, and you ate it in secret. You ate it in private because you were afraid that somebody was going to take it from you. You would hide your food from your neighbor. The pale horse we read brought, um, so, um, the, the, the pale horse adds to the sword and adds to the famine, wild beasts and plague. Well, Josephus write, writes that the, the Roman uh, soldiers threw their prisoners to the wild, wild beasts and there were diseases that ran through the besieged city. Jesus repeatedly talks about earthquakes. Well, did those happen? Well, not only did Josephus uh, write about the earthquakes that were uh, prevalent in the 60s leading up to AD 70. But many other writers talk about the great seismic activity that were going on all throughout the world. There was a great increase in earthquakes from Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, Rome, and Judea. All had earthquakes leading up to AD 70. So Josephus and the other historians that we rely on, they aren't inspired. I'm not saying that they are but they are helpful witnesses to these things. And when Josephus writes about what was left of Jerusalem after Rome destroyed it, it matches up with the decreation language of Revelation 6 that we read last week and of Matthew 24 and other places. Here's what Josephus writes. He says, The very view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country every way, and its trees were all cut down. Any foreigner who had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city now saw it as a desert, and they would lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. Nor had anyone who had known the place before, who had come on it a sudden now, they wouldn't have known it again. But though he, a foreigner, were at the city his, itself, he would have inquired for it. And what he's saying is that you could stand in the city itself and wonder, where's Jerusalem? Am I there yet? Such was the devastation and the desolation of Jerusalem. Well, um, in the midst of this destruction, however, there was an amazing evidence of God's providence. Another historian, Marcellus Kick, wrote in his book on Matthew 24, this is a quote from his book. One of the most remarkable things 
about the siege of Jerusalem was the miraculous escape of the Christians. It has been estimated that over a million Jews lost their lives in that terrible siege, but not one of them was a Christian. And this would be testimony to the fact that the church listened to what Jesus said. Remember, every time Jesus talks about these things that are coming in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus tells his people, when you see these things coming, get out of town. And so if this historical resource I just quoted is correct, they did get out of town and they were preserved. During the tribulation and desolation of Jerusalem, Christians were unharmed. Although before that and after that, many lost their lives through persecution. So in the midst of this decreation language focused on the old world, the, the angel now directs John's attention to the church. He directs John's attention to the elect, to the precious treasure of the saints. The martyrs under the altar have cried out for vindication, and this now is the answer to their prayer. Here's the promise, that through persecution, God preserves his church. Through persecution, his people are preserved. Now, this very careful, and listen, we are not saved and spared from persecution. We're not, we're not spared from trouble, but we are preserved through trouble. Now, John sees these four angels at the beginning of chapter 7, and they're standing at the four corners of the land, holding back the winds so that the wind should not blow on the land or the seas or on the trees. The angels are holding back the wind. Now, the wind is often associated with the work of the Holy Spirit over creation. Uh, the wind pushed back the waters of the flood. A wind held back the waters of the Red Sea. A rushing mighty wind blew over the church on the day of Pentecost. So the Spirit moves constantly over creation. He brings old worlds to an end. He brings new worlds into being. So here the winds of change, the winds of transformation, are being called to cease blowing for a time. It's significant that when Jesus calls for the four horsemen to come from the four corners of the earth to wreak destruction on Jerusalem, they come. And when he tells the angels to stop the blowing of the winds, they cease. The entire cosmos is under the direct control of our sovereign God. This is something you must never forget and you must always remind yourself of and remind your children of. We do not live in an impersonal, self-sustaining universe that just does its own thing, following its own course, out of control, doing whatever the forces of nature call it to do. The triune God by his spirit and by the work of his angels, is directly sustaining creation on a full-time basis. So there is no historical event. There is no war. There's no discovery. There's no scientific advance. There's no disease. There's no natural disaster. Not one thing that has ever happened has happened outside of God's comprehensive plan for all of humanity. Everything conforms to God's purposes and plans. If there is panic, and if there's distress, and if there is disease, God has allowed it, God has sent it for the working out of his own good pleasure. And so as his son, I'm, I'm his son, I'm his child, then it doesn't disturb me when 
when things are going sideways. It gives me faith and hope and confidence in a God who's directing everything for his own purpose, for his glory and for my good, ultimately. So here in Revelation 7, there's an angel who comes with the signet ring of the living God to mark the servants of God so that the judgment doesn't fall on them the same way that it falls on unbelievers. A couple of observations about that quickly. First, I hope you heard when I read it um, that this is the seal of the living God. You, you hear me use that phrase a lot. I say, let's, let's prepare to worship the triune and living God. Or I say, uh, hear the benediction of the living God. Why, why do I say the living God? Well, the Bible uses that phrase over 30 times throughout the scriptures and uh, particularly the Psalms. Well, what are we saying when we talk about the living God? Well, first of all, he's not an idol like the dead, dumb, deaf, blind gods of the pagans. He's not a feckless, powerless god like the false gods of the secularists. All their gods are dead because they're made by dead men. Our God is alive, and he is the creator of all things, and he gives life. And so when we say that God is a living God, that means he is awake and he is engaged, and he is present, that he exists in the life-giving community of the Trinity, and that he can enter into fellowship with us, and that we can enter into fellowship with him. An image, or a philosophy, or a mythology, or an ancient set of precepts, or a dead prophet, none of those can act in history. None of those can be your friend. They can't deliver you, they can't comfort you, they can't love you, they can't strengthen you but the living God can. And so we always say, and as often as we can, we're talking about the living God here. I want to be clear. We're not talking about a dead philosophy or a dead prophet. We're not talking about a hunk of wood. We're talking about the living God. And so with the living God and under the living God, we have the immense privilege of knowing and belonging to him. And the living God also can require our obedience. He can require our worship because he's alive, because he's engaged. Well, the angel comes with the seal of the living God, and he marks all of the saints on their foreheads. First, the book was sealed, but those seals were broken. Now the people are sealed. First the book, now the people are marked with a sign. This scene is familiar. Um, it, it's similar to Ezekiel 9, where the Lord summons uh, destroyers to judge the city of Jerusalem. But before they begin their work, he sends a man with an inkhorn to mark all of those who mourn the idolatry of the city so that all of the believers are marked. And then when the destroyers are unleashed there in Ezekiel 9, they're forbidden to touch any of those who are marked on their forehead. Well, what does that sound like? Well, that also sounds like Passover, doesn't it? When the angel of death goes through Egypt, he looks for the houses that have blood over the door. The ones that are not sealed with the blood lose their firstborn. But those who are sealed, those who are marked, are saved. Angels go to Sodom to inspect the city, and they seal Lot. They deliver Lot from destruction, and Lot escapes with his two daughters. Those who are marked are delivered. They are spared. And now comes this promise and reassurance in Revelation that those who are sealed are saved. When the Spirit blows, when those angels let the winds go, as they will, the believers, the marked ones, won't be swept away in judgment. They'll be filled with that Spirit, and he'll scatter them around to other parts of the world and, and cause them to serve there, but they are preserved. 
So we read in uh, our text, there's a census. There's a numbering of those who are marked, those who are sealed. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 in all. Who is this? Who are the 144,000? Well, this is the redeemed believing company of Israel who accepted Jesus as their king. This is Israel who is encamped in formation around the true tabernacle, Jesus. This is the army of the Lord. Whenever fighting men were mustered for battle, we would always read about the thousands of Israel. It's because they were, they were called in their thousands. They were arranged and organized in their thousands. That's how the military camps of Israel were divided. Now, now John hears a roll call of the tribes of, of Israel shouted out. And each of the 12 tribes has, has a division of a thousand, a perfect symmetrical, complete army. Now, once again, we can ask, were there literally 144,000 believing Jews who came out of the old covenant and made the transition to the new covenant? Well, it wouldn't be surprising if there were 144,000. 3,000 were baptized on Pentecost. A few days later, 5,000 more are baptized. In Acts 21, Paul talks about the thousands of Jews who he knows who have believed. All those thousands add up pretty quick. I mean, yeah, a thousand here, a thousand there. You know, pretty soon you've got 144,000, and they add up. So here, God chooses and seals his people out of old Israel. He, he dips into the old covenant people, and he brings out 144,000. Uh, 12,000 from each tribe. I think I just said 1,000. 12,000 from each tribe. 12 companies from 12 tribes. So 144,000. He brings them up out of the old covenant, and then he brings them into the new. He places his name on their foreheads, just like the priest had holiness to the Lord emblazoned on his forehead in gold. The covenant promises to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob are intact. This is what it shows us. They, the, the promises are going to be realized and received through the church, but, but here's the family tree. Here's the connection between the old covenant and the new. And though judgment is about to be poured out on the idolaters and, and judgment's about to be poured out on the apostates of the old covenant, those who have rejected Jesus, those who say we have no king but Caesar, they're all going to be judged. They will fall under judgment. However, the elect of God, the church, is not in danger of judgment. The church is safe. The church is complete. The church is sealed, and it is saved. And not only that, she's an army. She's arrayed like an army. That, that, is, that is encouraging. But wait, there's more. The 144,000 are not all that Jesus has in the world. They're accompanied by a great multitude. And I want to read this, finish reading this chapter and then just make a few more comments. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? 
And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You may pick up a pattern in Revelation. The Lord Jesus does things, he directs things, and then everyone breaks out in worship. He acts, and then he's praised. God does a thing, and everything in heaven rejoices. Uh, he's not... It, it, it's not as if God does a thing and then he skeptically questioned, oh, can he do that? Can, can he say that? Is he allowed to do that? Uh, God is not mistrusted. He's not hated. He's not doubted. He's worshiped. In heaven, when God does something, everything breaks out in praise. That's how things go in heaven. And that's how things will go on earth someday. Right now, God does a thing and nobody trusts him. Now God does a thing and, and everyone doubts him. But we'll grow out of that in time because heaven and earth will be made one and eventually will work and things will work like they do in heaven. There's another pattern, though, that you may have picked up on. First, John will hear a thing and then he sees it. So, so John hears a voice in chapter 1, and then he turns and he sees the Lord. He hears about the Lion of Judah, and then he sees a lamb. He hears about those who are sealed. And then in verse 9, he says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. You hear, and then you see. Biblical religion is always a word-based religion, not an image-based religion. Religion. We walk by faith, not by sight. God speaks to us. We believe him. We trust in what he says. We hide his word in our heart. And sometimes we get to see things. Sometimes we get to see how it works out. But first you trust in what you hear, and then you see. Hearing is first. You first hear, and then, and then you see. So I'm telling you today that God is sovereign. I'm telling you today that God has everything worked out. But you're going to go home and you're going to read the internet and you read the paper and it's going to look like everything's a mess. But you're going to have to remember, no, 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 what did I hear? I've got to hear it first. And then, and then I'm going to see the salvation working out. But you have to hear it first. And that's the pattern throughout Revelation. He hears it before he sees it. Now, what John sees in addition to the 144,000 sealed out of Israel, what does he see? He sees a great multitude of Gentiles that no one can number, a great incomprehensible swarm of humanity. We get two different perspectives on the church here. On the one hand, we have this orderly, symmetrical army. On the other hand, we have this wild mass of people from all over the place. And there's people from everywhere, all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. Sometimes Reformed people are apt to forget the God so loved the world part, right? We forget that God loves everybody everywhere, and he intends to redeem the whole world. God really does love the whole world, and he intends to save it all. Every nation, every race, 
every family of the earth. He's not pleased just to grab one person here and one person there while the rest of the world goes to hell and the rest of the world goes into destruction. Here is a vision of that whole world of humanity standing in worship before his throne. And the scriptures give us hope that one day the entire world will be converted to Christ, that the gospel is successful, that Jesus wins in the end. If I didn't believe that, I'd hang it up. I'd go sell cars or something. I I couldn't do this. If I didn't believe that Jesus wins, in the end. I can't trust in a savior who loses in history, but I can trust in a king that uh, to him bows every nation and tribe and tongue and family of the earth. This mass of humanity gives us the idea that when taken as a whole, those who will believe and those who trust in Christ so far outnumber the unbelieving that hell only gets a tiny fraction of humanity. Hell only gets a little margin. Just The devil just gets a little scrap, just a little scrap of people who reject Christ compared to the overwhelming majority of humanity who worship before the throne of God. That's the picture that we get there. This multitude is clothed with white robes. They've been cleansed. They've overcome. They're waving palm branches. They're speaking and singing and praying with a loud voice. They're all standing, and at the right time, they all fall down before the Lord. Bodily posture in worship matters in heaven. The attitude of the heart follows the attitude of the body. The the, the attitude of the body reveals the attitude of the heart, and we discipline our hearts by standing at attention or kneeling or raising our hands and eating and drinking. Again, if it matters in heaven, it's got to matter on earth. These these uh, worshipers do all these things together. They're they're acting corporately. These are all communal acts of worship. And what do they shout when they sing? They shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God. That means it doesn't belong to Rome. That means it doesn't belong to Herod. It doesn't belong to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It doesn't go to the philosophers or the idolaters or the mystics or the sorcerers. The one that we look to to save us is the one who we worship. If the state is the source of our salvation, then we're worshiping the state. The question here is who owns history? Who delivers Uh, uh, his people, who gets to determine reality? Salvation belongs only to the one who sits on the throne and to his son, the lamb. And there's no middle ground on that. It's not as if, you know, you can mix it up and have a little of both. Salvation belongs only to God. Um, They're singing salvation belongs to our God. They're singing from Psalm 118. They're singing Psalms in heaven and they're singing Psalm 118 and they're waving palm branches Again, there's another time where we see people singing Psalm 118 and waving palm branches, and that's on Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus rode through the palm branches and disrupted the worship at the temple. Now, once again, Jesus is being waved on, cheered on by palm branch-bearing worshipers, once again singing Psalm 118 to go disrupt the temple again, but this time, finally and fully. The first time we saw all kinds of leaves, but we saw no fruit. And that's when Jesus curses the tree, remember. Remember also in our study in Song of Solomon, the lover compares his bride to a palm tree that he climbs and he enjoys her fruits. Here, the lover gets to his palm tree and he gets to enjoy her fruits. These are the fruitful trees. These are the faithful trees planted by rivers of water. 
these are the trees that the winds are not to attack. The angels are holding back the winds for the sake of these faithful trees. They don't fall under the judgments coming for Jerusalem. They get all the blessings and all the benefits of having God dwell over them and with them. He literally says, I'm, I'm tabernacling with you. He casts the wing of his garment over them. He shepherds them. He feeds them. He waters them. He guards them from harm. He dries their tears. This vision is communicated to John so that he can write it down and so that he can communicate it to these first century Christians so that they know in spite of their various tribulations that they're about to suffer, they're not going to be destroyed. They're not going to be destroyed in judgment. God is not angry with them. God is not destroying them out of his wrath. Jesus knows them, and he knows their faithfulness, and nothing escapes his watchful eyes. Jesus knows that they are the true Israel. They are the true heirs of the promise. He has sealed them. That means he's going to protect them. That's a promise. I will protect you. These, and this is what this vision is for, they are not these insignificant, scattered, hopeless, powerless vagabonds. That's not what they are. Even though that's kind of how we feel today, isn't it? And we kind of feel like these scattered, hopeless, powerless vagabonds. We don't even have a, we don't even have a comfortable place to worship today. We're just kind of making do. And it, and, it, and it can be discouraging if we let it, if we let it. But we have this vision here that, no, you are not vagabonds. You are not hopeless. You are not powerless. You're not insignificant. You are an innumerable, victorious multitude. You are an army of conquerors. That's the image that he gives the Christians in the first century church here. And because they're an army, they're going to have casualties. Don't, don't misunderstand that. There, there will be some who lose their lives in persecution. They're not going to lose their lives in the day of the Lord when he comes in judgment against Jerusalem, but some of them are going to lose their lives as martyrs whose blood is at the foundation of the church. Some of them are going to lose families. Some of them are going to lose loved ones. Some of them are going to be deprived of possessions and comforts and homes. But this vision that John gives them shows them that this temporary persecution is not the end. It's not death. It's part of the birth of the new world. Any time that the winds of the Spirit blow across the earth, at creation, at the flood, at the Red Sea, at Pentecost, any time the Spirit blows, there is a new world born out of the old world. Uh, there are things that get carried away, uh, carried over into the new world, but everything's transformed and everything's made new. And the church, in these times when the Spirit is blowing and shaking things up, the church, the faithful people of God, the sealed ones, are put in a position to take dominion. Which is why in these crazy, wild times where it feels like everything's changing so quickly, faster than we even expect, the church must be a pillar of stability. That's why I said earlier, we're not going to be dominated and we're not going to be governed by fear. We're going to be governed by faith. We're going to be governed by trust. We may have to take precautions. We may have to act with wisdom. There may be things we have to change, and we're willing to do those things. We may have to meet in smaller groups of Christians for a while, but I will never deprive you of word and sacrament. We're going to figure out a way. We're going to do something because we're not going to cease the fellowship of the word and the fellowship we have around the table. We must remember who we are, that we are a pillar of stability in a 
in a messed up, crazy world that is so, so spooked, so easily spooked. Um, so I don't know what's going on in the world right now. We go through these times where it seems so fluid, and none of us knows what's going to happen next. I don't have a revelation from God. I know you don't either. But we do know how God has worked things out in the past. And we know what he has said. He is 100% in control. We know that. We can write that one down. We got it. He's 100% in control. We also know that he preserves his people through difficulties. He doesn't save us from difficulties, but he preserves us through difficulties. He brings us through them. He comforts. He provides. He uh, Sometimes his people lose their lives, not in judgment. He's not angry with them. They aren't cursed. He doesn't treat them like he does the apostates because once they come through tribulation, they get, to, they get to come stand before his throne. He gives them a white robe, and they get to stand there and worship him. They're washed, they're fed, and they have their tears dried. And through all of this, this is how he changes the world. I want the world to be changed. I want it to be transformed. But it comes through these upheavals. It comes through these difficult times. So don't fear. Don't fear when the winds are blowing. Don't fear because, child of God, you are marked you are sealed. You belong to him, and he has not forgotten your name. He hasn't forgotten where he puts you. He hasn't forgotten what he's doing in your life and in your world. He has not forgotten you. You are a formidable, innumerable, massive army. That's the vision that Revelation 7 gives us, and don't forget it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this opportunity now to have gotten together to hear it. And I pray that your spirit would continue to work it into our hearts. And when we're tempted to fear, that you would remind us of who we are and of your promises to us. So seal us with hope, we pray, and cause us to walk in faithfulness and trust all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.